Hi friends. I'm really excited to introduce you to Dr. Dent Gitchell, an educator, author, and meditation teacher, a guy with a lot of credentials and a lot of expertise. But what I just recently learned about him is that he's been a fan of the Grateful Dead since he was young. And along with that came a lot of consciousness expanding experiences with psychedelics. In this conversation with Dent, we'll dive into those early experiences and how they've shaped the wise and kind teacher he's become. To learn more about Dent, check out the links in the show notes. For a list of all my free courses on Buddhism, see the show notes too. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dent Gitchell. Well, Dent, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your wisdom and your stories and your experiences and your love of the Grateful Dead with this audience. And I should say, you've mentioned that you have, well, that long, long ago, you had some experiences with psychedelics. I've only ever known you in the Buddhist context. And I'm super curious to hear, you know, how did you get into psychedelics? What was the background of that for you? Yeah. Uh kind of a long story, which I'll, I'll shorten. Well, my experience with psychedelics is largely affiliated with my exposure and experience as a fan of the Grateful Dead, which encompassed quite a few years of my life, really looking back on it, 10 to 12 years of my life. Um, Starting at what age? Yeah, I'll give a backstory going into that. I was sort of, for whatever reason, a, a child adolescent young adult who was kind of always searching for something mm -hmm. and but I didn't have any reference point to really know where to go with my search mm -hmm. um, my parents didn't go to church and so they, they'd sort of withdrawn from particular religious perspectives that they had been had grown up in so I had really no reference point for where to look and my parents were very open but just to be yourself and go find yourself kind of thing <laughs> which is great and uh in 10th, the summer after 10th grade, I, I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. I went to a boarding school in, uh, Am, uh, what was it called? Andover in Massachusetts. Mm. And that was like a huge deal for me. A 10th, 16 years old from Little Rock, flying by myself to Boston. And, and this guy across the room, not, the, not a guy, he was like the, he was a college student. He was like the dorm guy who overlooked people, the RA mm -hmm. or something. And he was like sophomore and he had like kind of long curly hair and <laughs> he listened to the Grateful Dead all the time. And I just thought he was the coolest person in the world. His name was Lenny. I would like to figure out who he was. I don't remember his last name. And then there was approximately other, what year was this? This just would have been 1983. Okay. Okay. In the summer of 83. And I, at that time I was listening to a lot of like um, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Simon and Garfunkel for whatever reason, I was really tuned in to the kind of late 60s mm -hmm. early 70s well the grateful dead you know i was like <laughs> is this the 60s story yeah, but you're not no. that old <laughs> yeah they were they were like starting 65 and were going very strong then but they weren't on my radar that wasn't like mm -hmm. i'd never heard of them maybe you know reading an article or something uh my dad had a whole bunch of albums like 800 albums or something he's a musician and spent from the 50s up through you know contemporary stuff no Grateful Dead stuff, but I listened to a lot of what you would call hippie music, Woodstock, Crosby, mm -hmm. Stills and Nash, James Taylor, Paul Simon, <laughs> just on and on. And so I really had an affinity to that music and this sort of longing that like these people like knew something or something that yeah. I wanted. There was a sense that of freedom there or something. 
And so this guy, Lenny, was like, was listening to the Grateful Dead. And this other guy who was there as a student came with like this big box of tapes. They were Grateful <laughs> Dead tapes. And they would just sit there and talk and I would listen to them. And I was like, I want in on this kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, to shorten the story, I went back to school and discovered cannabis and some other things. <laughs> and uh, somewhere along the line, one of my friends has Grateful Dead tapes. And the backstory is the Grateful Dead kind of bombed on all their studio albums, but they encouraged people to tape their shows. They were kind of the originators of social media in a certain way. They And they had this newsletter, so they communicated directly with their fans. And there was this huge underground circulation of live music tapes. And so I met a few friends, we started listening, that kind of thing. And then I went off and had a few exposures to LSD during that time, like after my senior year, I think that summer. And you know, started wearing tie dyes and this kind of thing. And <laughs> back then, there was pre-internet, and there was one record store in town, and I bought some Grateful Dead uh, cassettes at that time. That's what I was listening to, and then had collected it. But you couldn't get the bootlegs unless you knew somebody. And <laughs> so I didn't know how to, and I didn't have the technology to even make a tape to tape back then. Uh, that's how it seemed like a different world it was. Anyhow, I went to school, and I was at Columbia University in New York City, and in my dorm room dorm literally like the first week i was there there was a sign that said grateful dead tickets <laughs> welcome <laughs> so, home dent <laughs> and so i like fought like for three nights at madison at um, the meadowlands which is across the river in new jersey and i met this girl in the dorm and invited her and, uh got on the subway and it was just full of people with tie-dyes and they're all like <laughs> man and two nights ago in Richmond they played Morning Dew and you know, I knew the songs a little bit and they were kind of going and I was like wow this is like the subway was just full and then I went to um, Court Authority where you take buses and took a bus to the Meadowlands and the whole thing was just a party and for whatever reason I had an extra ticket I can't memory's a little hazy but I remember getting off the bus and it was just like a circus like a carnival like what I think of as like a medieval bazaar or something from or from Morocco and I haven't traveled there but just like a world I'd never encountered yeah. and there's people holding up one finger which is like meaning they're wanting a ticket and there's this whole culture of giving people tickets sometimes I, did, I was not in on the, all of that because you you have to kind of experience it and uh so I like gave this guy a ticket and he just like hugged me for like five minutes and was jumping <laughs> around and I was like wow and uh I uh got on the bus that's what we call it and went for three nights and uh ended up not finishing my school at Columbia and took me out. I always, <laughs> always call it a sabbatical now for three or four years. And I was pretty well homeless in a sense, but lived on the road, went to a, maybe 200 Grateful Dead concerts wow. uh, all Wait, over the I, country. I just want to clarify, when you say got on the bus, does that mean like took acid? Well, that was part of it pretty oh, okay. well, but all, the bus meant like you're on like this in the 60s, there was a bus, Ken Kesey, who wrote one, flew over oh, the yeah. Cuckoo's Met. They had a, a group called uh, the Merry Pranksters, and they had a bus called Further that Trevor rode on the country. And Ken Kesey and the lyricist of the Grateful Dead was a guy named Robert Hunter. And there was a, the beat culture was really big in San Francisco, the Bay Area in the 50s. And in the late 50s, they were doing LSD. It wasn't illegal. The LSD studies, recruiting participants to I don't know, they give you a bunch of LSD and like ask you a bunch of questions. I don't know what they did, but <laughs> Robert Hunter and Ken Kesey were two of the early people in those experiments. And then it all 
began to circulate through the beat community. And the, this is kind of pre-hippies. And so further was the name of the bus. And so on the bus just became a term for jumping mm. on the sort of Grateful Dead train. Okay, it's like okay, a turn. thank you. It's, it's like a, once you're on the bus, are you on the bus or not kind of thing? Or oh, I went to a concert and now I'm on the bus. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> so you're on the bus and now you're basically kind of homeless and just following the Grateful Dead well, around the country. like after I uh, sort of quit going to Columbia, I was going to take a break or that's a, a whole different story. And then a friend of mine was like, come on tour with us this, this spring. This is 87. And that's when I went with a group of people and I was really on the bus, I would guess 87 through about 1990. Wow. And you traveling around and, you know, psychedelics was very much part of that culture and for better and worse, you know, I'm not like promoting, there was some definitely uh, a lot of casualties along the way. And, mm. But it was mind blowing in every sense of the word. And my sense of reality was totally just obliterated and smashed. And I came out of that wanting to study philosophy and physics and counter <laughs> Buddhism, but they all came out of this just being exposed to things that I didn't know were possible and really questioning everything, but also insights that meant there's more to reality than what they're telling us, in, you know, in a sense, whoever this they is, but like there's more out there than we even have a clue about. And there was something about the music and the concerts that it sometimes was magical spiritual uh joseph campbell who went in 87 said it was the return of dionysus to the west mm. and he said he had never seen such much pure bliss in a group mm. of people so there there was yeah, it's, it's a big story and it's just emerging now the second sort of renaissance i think of people who are more clear-headed you know the, a lot of the sort of bad drugs and things are out of the out of people's systems <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot of interest in uh, resuscitation of the music and that's not really what we're talking about now but that's so part of the culture and lsd was largely proliferated through that culture including their sound system they had state of art sound systems that were created by this guy named owsley stanley who this is like way ahead of their time they were crystal clear electronics in the early 70s and he was one of the major persons who made acid and distributed it. Um, in the early days, there was these things called the acid tests. This is when it was still legal. Ken Kesey and his people was basically this free form art thing where a bunch of people gathered and just people did art. And, and the Grateful Dead, when they were like 19, 20 years old or whatever, became the house band for that somehow. So that's where they began. Mm. So the whole from there to, and they would take LSD and practice like all night for like weeks at a time. And developed all these complicated rhythms and things and just really when you when you take lsd in a group setting you really sort of lose your sense of identity in a sense and can sort of get a group mind kind of thing going on so that sort of mentality carried through to the larger audience and the culture i had no idea their music was kind of coming from you know like group it, lsd experiences it came from the acid test they were the house band and uh yeah so and so there was and then there was also the government was following the, the deadhead scene and they had fake people trying to arrest people and, and infiltrating with their own lsd so the whole thing was just a big crazy world <laughs> that evolved um just on its own really because there was really no one leading it it just sort of happened and jerry garcia died in 1995 so you know the last days weren't, weren't real it, it got too big mm. and like all these people were coming just to kind of party and it turned into just a big monster basically in the last like five years probably 
but before in 1987 they had a big hit so it was really kind of under the radar it was like this traveling group of crazy circus you know this, there's this one of their songs when the circus comes in town and then you know then local people and doctors and lawyers i mean we're everywhere now but there was it was just this sort of multi-layered culture that would look like a cult from the outside except there's no leader no credo <laughs> the certain credos that sort of evolved were sort of a hippie credo of do whatever you want but take care of one another and be kind so mm. it's really interesting it's sort of the hippie sort of uh, ethos yeah largely embedded even though it was a very anti-authoritarian anti-authoritarian and like they gave their music away and they sort of shunned they created their own sort of musical company and shunned all the big business stuff and got out of contracts and uh, so it was and there was a sense that they were on the same level as us they, they didn't act like rock stars you could mm -hmm. actually write them letters <laughs> they, and if you ran into i never ran into them but i you know i had new friends that if you ran into them they would just talk to you and mm. uh, that kind of thing so there was a no sense. like bodyguards and well all ultimately they had to have that kind of mm. stuff but uh like they had their own newsletter and this is pre-social media you know they communicated directly with their fans rather than through like the large marketing companies and at that mm -hmm. time the whole marketing music business was based on album sales and concerts were intended to promote the album sales mm. and theirs was the flip <laughs> it was about the live performances which were never the same that's another mm. sort of thing that kept people coming so it sounds like you know for me to try and understand what your experience was at that time it sounds like it wasn't just any one of these elements like it was the whole scene of like the lsd but the group experience and the music and you know it sounds like a really incredible confluence of different like ways of opening up to a larger world yeah and then the particular lsd experiences i mean i did a lot <laughs> <laughs> compared to like if you read a book like how much you should do or enough to <laughs> need to go to a psychiatrist i used to joke with friends like you know if, if they knew how much if I told a psychiatrist what I did, they, you know, they'd do a lock me up or something. <laughs> this is like, uh, and there was liquid acid. It was like the big thing, like really pure acid. And, you know, we would do a lot. I'll put it that way regularly. And, you know, you can get pretty out there. Yeah. But when you're what? embedded in the culture, it doesn't feel like it. Then suddenly you're like, mm -hmm. you have to come into quote regular culture. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm like kind of not even in the same wavelength as people. Yeah. Like, what what were some of the experiences that you had i mean i've heard on high doses you can really like have a complete dissolution of the ego and stuff yeah it can uh it can go in many directions some of which aren't necessarily positive mm. and i've thought a lot about this and first i have to say it's been many many years since i've, I've done psychedelics so i'm not you know one it's illegal and i'm sort of <laughs> like a regular guy who has a job and stuff so i don't do illegal things and, uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And, and anyhow, uh, what was the question? Like, what were oh, what some is, of the experiences oh, you had? Oh my gosh. On high doses, like I've thought a lot about what, what is a delusion mm. or hallucination and what is opening up the portals of reality. Mm -hmm. And both of those occur, you know, in Buddhism, the mind is more than what we think of is just like this thinking thing it's mm -hmm. and it opens you up to your mind and if you don't have a reference point for what that is 
pretty big <laughs> uh, mine i'm hearing i'm hearing like ultimate mind like buddha nature type of mind you know well, like if our just, conceptual mind is one thing this is something much larger yeah type of mind that's one there's just an opening to things that are just mind-boggling in a sense of perceptually and feelings of maybe being one with the cosmos or the earth mm. um and then there's a certain group mind that can occur mm. in groups such as a grateful dead concert you get that many people and that particular type of music that they sort of created and jerry garcia who in my mind was some sort of bodhisattva or something mm. And Bodhisattva, for those who don't know, is like a great being in Buddhism, somebody very close to awakening. I don't want to get into all his downfalls as a human as well, heroin and other things that, in my mind, he was doing Tonglin and a non taking on some of that darkness so we could all learn from it, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But that's that's another story, perhaps. I mean, I've seen him cry tears of blood, I'll put it that way. And he mm -hmm. had a he could bring you to a ballad. So in Ellis, you'd just be out there in the swirl of the universe and then suddenly this soft voice, he would just sing a ballad that would just like bring you back to reality and earth and sadness. Mm. Um, his father drowned to death in his in front of him when he was like five. Ah. He had his finger cut off in some sort of accident as a kid. Uh, he had a very interesting upbringing, kind of semi on the streets of San Francisco. And so I really think he was tapped into the pain of the world, but also mm. the joys. And that's just my own sort of thing that I won't go into. But so there was like this group experience and there was this musical experience. And then there was something about him as a person that was special, like the kind of person who walked in a room and, but it was special, not like a rock star. Like he wore gratty, radia, like those cotton sweatpants, like people wore in the seventies <laughs> and eighties. And he would wear mm -hmm. like, the equivalent now of like black velcro tennis shoes and like a long t-shirt <laughs> and he smoked cigarettes like he was very unassuming and uh, mm. but there was something about his soul that would come through mm. the lsd experience and I, I people get that experience not on psych but it was such a large part of the this the whatever it just opened you up to so much mm -hmm. sometimes you can see the music <laughs> whoa that sounds cool <laughs> and there was a certain way that you could see it in the group and then one of their lyrics is uh when the music played the band mm. and then as an audience it felt like you were playing the music it was like mm. it was a it was this totally synchronous experience that was happening and nobody was really in charge of it and they knew that in the interviews that there was a lot of power there and it scared them so they they made a conscious decision not to manipulate it they wouldn't like make speeches or mm. or talk or anything uh they knew there was something there and i call it the it, <laughs> the mm -hmm. it factor or whatever when it happened mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so my experience with psychedelics is largely affiliated with that particular culture and the experiences coming out of it and the lsd and others uh, substances but primarily lsd was kind of the main when the ecstasy came on the scene in the late 80s and you know there were other DMT and things that I never experienced and mushrooms were around quite a bit, uh, but primarily LSD, uh, it was part of the culture. 
during that I could talk for hours about just that but (laughs) (laughs) I have so many questions about like all of it basically um I'm just kind of wondering you know during this time like during the peak experiences when you know you're using these psychedelics or just you know just being there for the experience what was the world like to you I mean how did you experience yourself and the world around you well sometimes it was like pure bliss and connection Mm. sometimes it was just being stripped I have this experience now sometimes in meditation not like in a practice of meditation but after like six months or something maybe this whole like being aware that oh my gosh this whole thing I've been doing has been my ego kind of thing and just like Mm. this identity dissolution or something it's like oh my gosh just more of a clear seeing of who I am and part of that is very painful because it's mm. like this whole other story that I've been living by is like not real so sometimes yeah. there was a sense of like skeletons are a very big in that Grateful Dead iconography just being stripped down to the bone and mm. what's left so there's a sense of coming out cleansed sometimes of just being obliterated yeah. <laughs> in a sense of all the things you thought you were and you thought society was mm-hmm. which can be very scary so sometimes it was very enlightening, sometimes very scary. And then sometimes very scary insights. Like there's so much power here. Like, are these guys, is this the devil or, you know, these mm. sorts of thoughts, like there's so much power here. Is this like, what's going on here? Is this whole thing like a CIA experiment or is this, <laughs> I mean, really like these, these, cause there was incredible power and energy mm. and, uh, yeah, so lots of different, it could go in many different directions. It wasn't always just, yeehaw, you know, <laughs> experiencing the world as one. That experience yeah. of expansiveness can be quite destructive to your sense of identity mm-hmm. in a positive sense in the long run, but it can also, you know, be too much. And, and, and it can be like, oh, but it led me to many re- people would say, you know, you know, when your time is done and, mm. I followed them pretty much through 89 the spring and one day I was in California I planned on moving there because that was kind of like if you were a deadhead that was a cool place (laughs) to end up being and so I'd gone out there and instead of getting a job I ended up just seeing a bunch of concerts and (laughs) remember one particular time in uh, April of 1989 I was just like all right I've gotten enough it's Mm -hmm. and I took a bus back to Arkansas and you know enrolled in college and it was just it was like it had given me what what I could have but yeah so but it was it was an incredibly powerful way of opening up to realities and community but it was not without risk you know it could go in many different directions because there was nobody orchestrating the whole thing there was no like ground or nobody to say all right this is what you need to do or a path it was uh, yeah I mean it's the first place I encountered Buddhism was at a Grateful Dead parking lot yeah it was just just full of mystery Hare Krishnas were there Buddhists (laughs) all these musicians playing music everywhere just a bazaar everywhere people selling sandwiches out of their cars <laughs> just uh, it was kind of a open society in a sense yeah i guess I'm not one sure question what your question was i apologize but i was just <laughs> no i mean i'm not even sure there was a question i think it's just it's, it's so interesting to hear this and you know, interesting to hear that you could be immersed in it for so long and then just come to the realization, like I've gotten what I need from it. Um, 
I'm kind of curious, you know, we're, we're in this moment of like, you know, the psychedelic renaissance right now where the research is starting up again and public interest is starting. Everybody's reading Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. And, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times that things could go in different directions, that there's maybe, you know, the potential for a darker side to it. And that's definitely not what I'm here. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm tuned into the psychedelic advocates, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I'm not hearing, you know, what, is there a cautionary tale that you feel like you want to, or, 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 you know, advice that you want to give people now from your time, having seen both well, sides of it? I guess one is just know how much you're taking. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds helpful. I mean, it wasn't standardized, you know, so if it was legal, you would know and you could, I mean, so I'm a proponent of, of, of legalizing things like mm -hmm. that um, because I think it would be a lot safer. People are going to do stuff anyhow. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get into the pros and cons of that kind of argument. But one is just know how much you're taking. And two, be in a safe environment because it, mm -hmm. it's going to open you up to things and including your own neuroses, your own fears. It's going to open you up to a lot or it can potentially open you a lot up to a lot. And just like in meditation or spiritual development, it's not always pleasant what you're opened up to and you need to have resources to be able to deal with it. And if you get open up too fast and you don't have resources, then it, it can be, you can be quite dependent on others around you <laughs> to um, help you or, or help you out, sort you, guide you, et cetera. So just have a loving community and I'm trying to be very careful because it's illegal. So I'm not trying to promote any, you know, yeah. anything, but, I would yeah. say in terms of the psychedelic sort of revolution that's occurring, I'm, I'm definitely interested in it. And I think we need to wake up <laughs> yeah, and I feel like, you know, psychedelics could be a part of that. And I'm not really up to date in like the research and how it's being done and legality. I, I feel like with what's happened with cannabis, it, it could mm -hmm. be possible, you know, for it to be legalized. Mm -hmm. And then that's a whole different discussion. And Denver, uh, I think is decriminalized magic mushrooms so it yeah, seems from what like i understand there's a few states that. it's decriminalized but you still can't purchase it i don't believe like you couldn't go to a store and that kind of thing yeah. but uh yeah i think that's the next wave that's coming perhaps in at least some parts of the world and country yeah so i feel like it's a yeah i feel like we have to wake up as a as a global community and and i see that as a potential part of that not and i'm not again involved in it personally or in any of the sort of movements or research but mm -hmm. sort of have an eye open <laughs> to what's going on and the Grateful yeah. Dead music's made a big comeback in the last five years um there's a group called Dead and Company and I, I follow them and not like travel around but you know I have <laughs> a little bit and there's just a lot of young kids coming and it just it, I don't know I feel like there's not only that but globally there's like two things going on there's like this backwards kind of thing going on with for lack of a better word, or close-mindedness, tribe, and tribalism, and a negative. Yeah. And there's also this beautiful opening. So I, I feel like psychedelics could be part of that last sort of thing that's going on of opening and connecting and reconnecting to the earth, mm -hmm. each other, and um, getting out of some of the rigid constructs, perhaps that mean some of us had have had with religion, mm -hmm. uh, and just. The Dalai Lama says, you know, his religion is kindness. And I feel like if we're going to survive, mm -hmm. we have to all have, that is our basic religion in a sense, not, I'm not putting down any religions, but yeah, a common ethic. And I think uh, 
it needs to be based on kindness. And I think that psychedelics are in no means necessary, but could be possibly beneficial for some individuals or communities, particularly the research that's being done, for instance, in the therapeutic uses of psychedelics, which again, I'm not well read on, but a lot of it is using very low doses, what they call micro doses, which mm -hmm. means it's like under the threshold of recreational use. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole- Like you might not even be able to feel an effect. Yeah, the way- You just would uh, have it in your system. I've heard it is like, you might feel a little happier or something, but I don't, you know, I don't know. And it's a different way of use, utilizing psychedelics in my experience, mm -hmm. but I could see that as potentially very positive avenue. And there's been research that people have even taken psychedelics once have, I don't remember the research, you know, lower incidence of domestic violence and all these other mm. things. There's, there's research, just the fact that you have done it once mm -hmm. can have positive impacts. And I don't want to, you know, get into that too much because I haven't read the research yeah. directly and got into it. But I think yeah. the potential is there for it to be part of a, a global awakening, but not like it's the answer, you know, without other yeah. parameters and discussions and communities and how it would fit in and, you know, is widely known. It's, it's part of some in native traditions mm -hmm. in terms of religious traditions and that kind of thing. So I think there's mm -hmm. a history there. Uh, yeah. Around the globe, people have been using yeah. different types of plants. I mean, yeah. since there have been humans. Um, and then there's this, the stoned ape hy hypothesis coming <laughs> through Terrence McKenna that yeah. <laughs> kind of laughed at in the early 70s that like in, in some time during evolution and the foraging periods, people were eating psilocybin mushrooms and those particular people evolved. Their brains rate. developed. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so their the advances in civilization are a result of the stoned apes, you know, but I, and I, don't, yeah. I don't know about all of that, but. I think it's difficult think it's to make human... a rigorous claim for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> and I, for I anything, like... really, for so right. long ago, and we don't right. have a lot of evidence right. for it, but it is an interesting thing to think about. <laughs> but I do feel like there's some community and some bliss and some mm -hmm. opening, awakening aspects of it sort of coming through the hippie culture that really was in a very white sort of middle-class way. So I'm not saying <laughs> that's the answer for the world, but in a yeah. for particular, those of us in particular cultural backgrounds I think it was introducing us to ways of living and thinking about the world that we're connecting maybe to pre-industrial or ways of, of living and, and living together and celebrating and communing and other things a lot that our our society and our culture has kind of left by the wayside and you know part of what I find really interesting about this moment in terms of the interest in psychedelics is like you know back in the 50s and 60s it seems to me just from reading the histories, like, you know, so much of the emphasis on the spiritual life was on psychedelics, you know, that people were taking this and was opening their minds. And now, I mean, yoga and meditation have been huge for at least a decade. You know, yeah. there's just all these different sort of containers for holding a spiritual life. And when right. you see this psychedelic option as one option among all those, you know, and using meditation for integration, because what are you going to do with these experiences once you've had them? It just, it just seems like we could be entering a very different type of conversation around psychedelics now than there was in the late sixties and early seventies when, you know, like you're saying, like there was a lot of positive, but there was also maybe a lot of like irresponsible, you know, just like, here you go. Here's a super yeah. high dose of LSD. Let's just see what happens. A lot of na na naivety, if mm -hmm. I can say that 
uh, naiveness. That's not the correct word. Naive, naive, yeah, I can't naive, even say naivety, it. Naivety, naivety. Yeah, one. and a lot of, yeah. I mean, people were jumping in and sort of shattering yeah. the belief systems and the culture in a sense around them. And yeah, I see those people in a way as, you know, breaking down some barriers that, and anytime you jump in and break down barriers, you know, there's some risk involved, I think. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, pie in the sky, good times necessarily for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just kind of having this discussion about now the context for psychedelics, it makes me kind of want to pick your story back up because you mentioned, you know, being introduced to Buddhism and Hare Krishna's all these different things, you know, in the Grateful Dead scene. And I know that now you're, you're a therapist, you're teaching people how to be counselors, you're a Buddhist instructor and a compassion cultivation training instructor. Like what was, what was the sort of through line between those early psychedelic experiences and yeah. now? Well, I, I, uh, I ended up going to a small liberal arts college here in Arkansas after this experience. So this would have been 1993, I was like after my uh, 1990, when did I go? I started in the fall of 1990. So I took basically four years off mm -hmm. college and I, uh, I was kind of not out there, but I had like a lot of confidence. Like I've seen some things and I would like want to mm -hmm. figure out like what this all means at that age, I had not read philosophy or I had no background in anything except I had a book that this person, the hippie deadhead community really took care of one another. Mm. One time I was taking a train to San Francisco, Oakland, San Francisco Bay area for new year's Eve concerts for the great. And that was like a big sort of deal. If you could, and they had their own mail order ticket system. So you could bypass Ticketmaster and stuff. Oh, you, wow. You actually had to go to the post office and fill out this card and put it in the mail at a certain day, postmarked <laughs> a certain day for how many tickets and put cash in it. No, a, a postal money order. <laughs> and it was kind of a lottery. And so mm. if you went to a, like a tour, you would go get your tickets ahead of time. But like the New Year's shows were like, it was kind of like a crapshoot. But anyhow, I got tickets that year. And so I went by myself on a train out there and I remember, remember having Christmas meal on the train with some woman and her kids from Orange County, <laughs> like making stereotypes of Orange County. And I was just like pretty raw. And they put me at this table with these people. And I just remember the conversation just as this poor lady was like, oh my gosh, you know, like, <laughs> Christmas Eve, where are you going? Well, I'm going to see the great lady. <laughs> well, then her kids, are, she's like, well, kids, you know, don't worry, he's safe or whatever. And right. uh, I'm going to cover their ears now. <laughs> and then there was this hippie bus line called the Green Tortoise, I believe, that oh, man. I took a bus from LA to San Francisco and like, they didn't have seats and you like sat in couches and talked to each other and people smoked <laughs> and somehow somebody told me about that. So I was taking the Green Tortoise and older hippies would usually take care of younger people like who were kind of on the edge mm. and somebody probably saw me as that and this guy came and I just remember he talked to me for like three hours just where mm. are you going and giving me advice about the bay area you know it can be pretty dangerous do this and this and he handed me this book the wisdom of insecurity by alan um, watts mm. and i i didn't read it but i carried it around <laughs> somehow made it back home with it and started reading it before I was going back into college 
and I didn't really understand it, but it was, I was searching for something that could help me make sense of these experiences other than just going to concerts. Like, you know, yeah. what does this all mean? And I didn't know the difference between Hare Krishna and a Buddhist and a Hindu <laughs> or, a, I mean, I didn't have no reference point, yeah. but I started going to bookstores in Little Rock and I found a book, um, what's her name? Alexandra, she went to Tibet in the night. Oh yeah, Alexandra David Neal. And I read her books and I was like, oh my gosh, I want some of this. <laughs> but I had, still had no reference point because it was very, you know, a different world. And mm -hmm. I went to And college. hardly anything would have been actually out there published and like reputable, dependable about yeah. Tibetan Buddhism at that time. And definitely not in a bookstore in Little Rock, Arkansas. So, <laughs> right. so I went to Hendricks College and, and my <laughs> faculty advisor, Dr. Peg Falls Corbett, who was philosophy, she ended up being my philosophy mentor. They assigned, and I was like, I want to get a, and I'd, I'd read the Tao of Physics, uh, Capra's book. So I was yeah. like, I want to be a double major in philosophy and physics. That's what <laughs> I told her. And she goes, okay. And so she signed me up and she goes, well, I really want you to take this class with this other guy called Varieties of Christianity, Jamie Daniel. I'm like, Christianity, you know, yeah. like that wasn't on my radar yet at all. <laughs> and so I was taking physics classes, which lasted like a whole year. I mean, I, I could ace the math and stuff. I did really well, but like the engineering stuff, like the experiments, I had no interest. I was like asking all these questions about what does it all mean? Because oh, I'd read the Dell of physics, all the quantum <laughs> right. stuff about reality. And, and they're like, you need to just go back to the philosophy building. <laughs> <laughs> and anyhow, Jay taught this course and he taught the varieties of like, Christianity from a global perspective, Afro conversions, mm. and and I remember after class one day, I was just like, well, you know, talking about my experiences, you know, what what is Christianity? You know, I've experienced all this, and he's like, well, oh, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. I'm really interested in the intersection of spirituality and music. And you know, I was at Woodstock, and I was just like, oh my gosh, this guy's cool. You know, I thought he was <laughs> right. this little geeky, geeky Christian professor, and. Uh, then the next semester, he was teaching Introduction to Buddhism. Oh. And uh, so I had in my mind that Buddhism was like this exotic. I'd read Alexander David Neal's stuff just, you know, and it's all about all the exotic aspects of Tibetan Buddhism, basically. Yeah. Person stories. Yeah. And then, you know, we read like the Four Noble Truths and stuff. And I was like, it was like this feeling of somebody shooting it straight. Like I had this Yeah. Feeling and then he had a, a mentor, a Zen Roshi Fukushima, who was in the Rinzai sect in Japan, who would come once. So Jay had taught him English, I believe, when he done a time period when Jay was a grad student, but they had a lifelong connection and um, Roshi had taught him to meditate. And so I really learned formal Zen meditation mm. from a, a, a Zen a Fukushima a Roshi, high, you know, authentic meditation. Mm -hmm. And Jay also practices still does practices in so i got so i think just in and of itself that taught me one well like this guy's a christian and he's teaching meditation and i had this other book that i got as it started like there's something here i want to explore this mm -hmm. religion or this i want some of that but in my mind i was like i'm reading i'm gonna get enlightened kind of thing <laughs> right <laughs> 24 like i'm gonna do this like i'm gonna yeah, get enlightened. Yeah. like and so it's I would age drive. appropriate. I had the same experience when I was like, I don't know, 20 yeah. or 22 right. or something. I was like, this should take six to nine months and right. I should become enlightened. So I was trying to meditate, but it hurt like hell. <laughs> yeah. And in that type of meditation, you're supposed to sit, you're basically completely motionless for 45 minute sessions. 
and my mistake or benefit or the first, I was like, I'm gonna get enlightened. So I, I registered to do like a, it was either a weekend or a week retreat with Roshi when he was here. And like the physical pain and the torment in my mind, I was in pure agony. And, uh, but I was also intrigued. I was like, these people have something I want. Yeah. So I started driving to Memphis. My philosophy professor told me about a bookstore there for philosophy books. How far and, is and that? Two, two and a half hours. Dang, that's devotion. So I, would, I would drive there every three or four months and buy a big stack of books, uh, philosophy. And then I just, they had a Buddhism section and I discovered the Dalai Lama there. Mm. And I got, uh, so I started, but I was still looking for the exotic part. I think I was like, this, this sitting stuff is too hard. You know, I, want <laughs> yeah. like I want some of this magical <laughs> stuff. Like, and it made sense to me with my psychedelic experience. Like I want the magic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I was reading the Dalai Lama and I was like, all right, these, these, the same feeling I had with the Grateful Dead. I was like, they're either onto the whole truth or the whole thing is like a sham. I yeah. Like, because that whole, I was reading like, and I started uh, Snow Line just began. So I was ordering the Snow Line catalog in the mail and I was ordering from them as well. I got Anne Klein's early books on epistemology and Jeffrey Hopkins. They had this whole curriculum they were trying to do in the West to mirror a, a like a Geshe or something. Yeah, yeah. So I was buying all these academic books. I still have them. I'm looking up at my bookshelf, like <laughs> debate in Tibetan Buddhism and and stuff on epistemology and all the Dalai Lama's books. And then I got the Kala Chakra book, Jeffrey Hopkins. And it was just like, because I'd read somewhere the fastest path to enlightenment is Kala Chakra. So I ordered that book <laughs> and I'm reading it and I'm like, it's all this stuff about initiation and cleaning yeah. the shrine and stuff. I was like, it's so also no, incredibly complex. Yeah. So I, I had mean, no reference point, but I was soaking in all this information from books mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, is this even the same religion? Because I was also mm -hmm. reading Sharon Salzberg's early book, uh, Loving Kindness came out in that time sometime, uh, Jack Cornfield's Path of the Heart. So I was reading and I was like, is this even the same religion? <laughs> and I wasn't, you know, I was like, or is this whole, is this a, like a made up religion, the tantric stuff? But I was a yeah. And then I moved to Texas and uh saw an ad for a and i mean and then there wasn't internet so there wasn't like a lot of opportunity in the south there were no opportunities like mm -hmm. to go like you know see what this is about or at least on my radar and mm -hmm. i saw a flyer somewhere in dallas about a meditation uh, in the tibetan kaigu tradition and i'd been reading oh, yeah there's a center out there oh oh yeah hall on like these experiences he had with the karmapa and i was like i want some of that because that's like it synced with my other and it seemed fast and easy and <laughs> yeah you know and then they were having that whole karmapa controversy and there was all this tantric stuff but i didn't have any context for even knowing what we were doing in the rituals and stuff mm -hmm. and then i was kind of freaked out because i was like all right if these people are enlightened and i'm not putting any tradition down i'm just saying talking about my experience it was like why can't they figure out who the Karmapa is? So I had this. <laughs> there was a like, succession, like the Karmapas, they have to recognize reincarnations. Yeah, it got complicated. Right. It's a long story. And I'd, I'd read the books of Oye, oh, I think it's Nada Hall. I don't know how to say it. Yeah, but yeah. He, he ended up being on one side, and the place I was in was on the other. And it got kind of scary to me in a sense. And also, mm -hmm. and I just, so I just kind of decided I'm going to do it all on my own. Um, I've heard Anne Klein talk about Buddhists. But I was, the whole time the zazen stuck with me. I, mm. I, I developed a daily meditation, but I would come back to it. And I remember I was 
start having feelings of oh, I can do this mm. but at the same time I didn't have a reference point like how long I should be doing it and I sort of yeah. had this rule system in my head of if I'm only doing it 15 minutes am I a bad person you know all these yeah things. yeah and then I gradually more books started coming out I, I, I read Robert Thurman's I think it was his first book the central philosophy of Tibet which was some oh. not his long long rim but a medium level or something mm-hmm. and I started reading his stuff and it started to make not that I understood it but and then the mention of Dalai Lama just coming back to compassion all the mm-hmm. time at some point I was like I trust this man mm-hmm. and started reading more and more of him and and the, he would refer to Chandrakirti and the Chandrakirti paid an homage to compassion rather than to traditional and I was like, there's something there I mm-hmm. want that, so I saw it as- Like you're drawn more to that compassion, the emphasis on compassion. And I think that was a need for being grounded because I was already kind of out there. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I started going to, found teachers and went to retreats and uh, and stuck with the Zazen and it started to work a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Developed a daily habit, daily practice. Mm. And just kept reading books, basically, uh, still thinking I was going to get enlightened, just like kind of reading these <laughs> Tibetan ph- philosophical books. Uh, and to be uh, fair, that is the language of the tradition. You know, yeah. in Zen, they talk about like you sit in the right posture and you are Buddha. Right. And like in the Tibetan yeah. tradition, you know, they talk about Dzogchen and, you know, Buddhahood in one lifetime. So it's not like we were just a bunch of crazy Westerners who were like, yeah, no problem. Yeah. And then in 2006, so I, you know, I've read a, you know, I'd written, read a lot of hundreds of books probably by then. And I'm not like, not that I retained them all, but sort of heavy books in Tibetan mm-hmm. Buddhism. And uh, I went to more retreats, not, I didn't connect with a teacher, but I went to more retreats and I got, you know, it was all coming back to suffering and equanimity and these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I kind of wanted something more, but that's, it felt safe to me or something. There was something I trusted. Mm-hmm. And then I, in 2006, I was in my PhD program at University of Arkansas. And financially, I didn't have, I was kind of in a tough spot, but somehow I got this large fellowship that allowed me to not work for four years and get mm-hmm. a PhD. It was essentially through the Walton Foundation. And uh, I was walking through the uh, library the summer of 2006 August and there was a flyer of introduction to Tibetan Buddhism Geshe Thupten Dorji undergraduate class and I'd been you know and I was at that time having this sort of existential crisis and I've been reading all these books and the books are all saying you need a teacher you need a Mm -hmm. teacher and then when the student's ready the teacher will come or these kind of things I was like Mm -hmm. well maybe I'm never gonna be ready or maybe I'm just gonna Mm -hmm. like be reading books my whole life I mean I knew that I needed something mm-hmm. and I uh the class was full and I didn't have money at the time but somehow I I emailed Sidney Burris who was the person who brought Geshe there he was director of Fulbright Car- College of Arts and Sciences and he put me on a waiting list and I got an email back like two days later saying you're in the class and then I didn't have money to pay for it so I somehow <laughs> convinced my uh somebody on the in the university that somehow that class would help me with my <laughs> PhD curriculum. <laughs> and so, and then I was just in heaven, Geshe just, mm. 
he doesn't pull punches even with he's teaching undergraduates or anything it was like basically the long room tradition from the beginning to the we read atisha's wow. lamp to the path to enlightenment and then wow i started reading uh, songkapa and, and um, shanti deva via the dalai lamas and then it, i realized thing. we've said long room a couple of times well you said long oh, yeah. room a couple of times now it's, long it's room means like stages right? of the path right yeah it's kind of like a developmental system where you're going through you know from the basic right. to the more advanced stages of right. understanding and meditation stuff like that it's it's yeah. a it's from the galukpa system so it's on yeah. you've mentioned has right one of the most famous right. presentations of that system i forgot this wasn't a, like a buddhist conversation <laughs> yeah i know i mean it's, yeah, it's so. us it's easy to forget so it, gave, it started giving me a framework for like what this tradition is and how you need to move through it and also a living, breathing person who's a Geshe yeah. Narampa or Larampa or something. Oh yeah, Larampa, like the highest grade of yeah. Geshe degree. It's like, like a like a PhD with honors or something. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm still his student, and I went and visited him just a few weeks ago, and stayed, you know, I stay with I stayed with him, and but just like sitting in his, he would have wins. In addition to teaching at the university, he well, he was supposed to be there one semester. It was like a visiting thing, and then. I remember Sydney was asking people in the college if we would write letters to some dean or somebody, you know, saying what a wonderful experience. And he's been there now for 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, so just read it, just, yeah, just seeing a living, breathing person and mm -hmm. just getting that beat into my head over and over again, the importance of compassion and the basics and karma mm -hmm. and karma and compassion, compassion, <laughs> compassion, <laughs> compassion, you know, ethics, ethics, ethics. Mm -hmm. and, and just the fact of his credentials and then seeing other monks and visiting Tibetans who is he's always hosting people and just the respect that they would show to him because mm -hmm. he's a very um like he doesn't have an entourage and like mm -hmm. whether you're an undergrad student who never has is going to have interest in Buddhism again or one of his students or a visiting monk it's like the same human to human interaction and respect Mm. so i learned tons about compassion just watching him and mm. um, then going through the seven points of mind training and these sorts of things mm -hmm. just really gave me a springboard to get in deep deeper and then it gave me the springboard to compassion meditation is hard mm -hmm. you know the visualizing everyone and not even visualizing just you know basing a meditation on the fact that other people have been your mother in a past life and just struggling as a westerner with all right if i don't really totally believe that yet or mm -hmm. like how do i work with these practices and mm -hmm. then uh, i started you know just gaining more and more skills and more and more resources became available in the culture and so it's been a process to me since then of really sinking more and more into, into these you know ethics shamatha um, basic breathing meditation and compassion mm -hmm. practices and the four measurables and these sorts of things so to me it's been mm -hmm. a process of thinking of buddhism being way out there to just coming back home over and over again yeah so like so becoming I'm, less exotic and stuff and more yeah. just like your way of being so, I, so, I, so i'm really to tie it back to psychedelics i think that's that would be a really wonderful because i have no clue like what would a psychedelic experience be in a container of safety and ethics mm -hmm. and discussion and I, I could see a lot of possibility there because mm -hmm. uh, i was kind of doing it free form out in the wild world and uh, mm -hmm. 
it was beautiful. And I mean, I'll, it's like, I'm have nostalgia about it. I, I still have chills in my spine. Like, did this really happen? You know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, there was some magic there that I don't think really happened in the West, but that's my own thing, you know, my own belief or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a way to help bring magic back, you know, like Tibetan Buddhism is full of magic and yeah you know I think when you start diving into the deeper layers of your mind whether it's through Buddhism or any other tradition like you just start to realize like the whole thing is made of magic yeah you know you, like a disenchanted world is fundamentally like not accurate so it's it's interesting to hear you say you know like you could see them like going well together Buddhism gave me the framework to sort of not that I live my life in this state of like tapped into magic, but the magic in a sense is worthless if it's not grounded in compassion and ethics to me. So yeah, I, that's where I think such a good I think point. Of, I think of Tantra as skillful means in this. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us in the West are just looking not in a bad way, but we need something else. So that, so there's a certain draw to tantric practices and things that I think are similar to the draw of psychedelics in a sense yeah so i'm really uh yeah uh, psychedelics in a sense led me back to Mm -hmm. uh to the ground or to a sense of the importance of of a balance of that yeah tapping into like the woe-ness of it all (laughs) (laughs) or the mystery and the interconnectedness and yeah just that mind and universe are way more than we think it is yeah but it needs some sort of reference point to work with that or it can like swallow you up or mm-hmm. become too scary or overwhelming or mm-hmm. the, the whole spiritual bypassing conversation you know you can bypass yeah. you bypass my own needs and wants and pains and go there and not really be addressing the core yeah aspects of ego or whatever you want to call that that buddhism is really designed to to address yeah, like trying to skip straight to enlightenment, but then yes. there's all this work left undone. You yeah, know, like exactly. all your psychological stuff is unprocessed. Right. It's kind of the idea of spiritual yeah. bypassing. And yeah. I think so that's I'm, been the critique for a long time of psychedelics yeah. is like, oh, people just want the high. Right. You know, but what you're talking about, like if there's a context and a container of the ethics and the emphasis on, you know, karma and mindfulness and all that kind of stuff, it's not just about the high. But I will also say, I mean, I know people who, and of people and know people who you know have never practiced a form of religion or practice at all who have sort of come out of that community who are you know as ethical kind mm-hmm. enlightened people as anyone else i know so i don't mm-hmm. want to like be making the claim that a particular type of religious practice needs to be yeah um, be pursued or something like that yeah i'm glad you said that that's not what i meant but i think sometimes you know, it's easy to go in that direction or think like, oh, Buddhism's more compatible with psychedelics and Christianity or something. Like we just happen to be Buddhist. <laughs> like what I've gotten out of Buddhism, I could see someone else getting out, getting just out of a loving community, you know, not mm-hmm. necessarily with religious practices involved in it or something like that. But I do feel like mm-hmm. the sort of openness can be, should be balanced with some sort of groundedness and connection and yeah. it it feels to me sometimes you know reading the new psychedelic literature and people's experiences and stuff like that and like it feels to me like a lot of us really have the grounding part down 
you know, yeah. like I know that for me, I was introduced around 20, you know, to Buddhism and that kind of took me on a different path, but like, you know, science, history, like all that right. kind of stuff. I mean, that's where I feel comfortable. That's like a home base. And if you start talking about all this crazy stuff like Tantra and psychedelics and whatever, you know, from that space, if you've only got the grounding, it's really hard to imagine yeah. how the world is made of magic. And I think, I think we as Westerners, you know, I, I see this having spent a lot of time in other cultures, like especially the Thai culture and, and even more than that, the Tibetan culture, they, they, they were raised in a different world. Right. And I think it's like really hard for us sometimes to, to realize how deeply we're conditioned not to recognize magic. Yeah. And the, the capability of like, you know, setting aside a weekend, doing a psychedelic journey and having the world crack open into magic. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it could be useful for our society in a way, like it seems to be like the vitamin we're running lowest on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's almost necessary, but, but then again, I don't have a firm idea of what the logistics would need to be to make that safe and doable. Yeah. I don't, but I, I, yeah, I think we need magic and we need to connect with the world, the earth, yeah, and all the realities, for lack of a better term, you know, that that we're embedded in. Yeah. They're way bigger and more mysterious than sort of the culture we've constructed over the past 500 years or 400 years or what have you. Depending yeah. On, you know, how you look at that. And, and you <laughs> know, if you think about like all traditional Buddhist traditions, thailand or tibet or china or japan like wherever they all lived in that world and you know it's western buddhism that's trying to kind of like domesticate the yeah. dharma and take these magical portions out and yeah you know i'm just thinking of this like hearing you describe it you know that 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 we i don't want western buddhism to become this like dry gray right <laughs> denatured buddhism and it'd be yeah. nice to have some option for bringing the magic back yeah, I had a conversation. I don't want to say the person's name, or but yesterday with a person from an Asian country who's over here and has been practicing Western Buddhism, and this person expressed concerns similar to what you're you're expressing. Yeah, and and I just I want to say having having said that in the context of psychedelics, you know, I really value that about Asian cultural traditions of Buddhism. I know it's kind of popular in the West to be like, oh, that's just cultural, blah, blah, superstition, whatever. I think it's actually really valuable. But I think when we as Westerners, or for me anyway, I'll speak from my personal experience. When I, as a Westerner, just try to import the Tibetan version of magic, it doesn't really right. suit our culture. Right. So if there's a culture, if there's a way that we can understand to crack open well the dead and company are going to be playing in houston uh <laughs> two weeks from today so go check oh, them really out. <laughs> just go to the parking lot if you're in the houston area and just put a finger up and ask for some lsd well, oh, it, no not i'm not it, just a little bit of that magic is there not in terms of the drugs mm. just in terms of the young people and the kind of bizarre mm. bizarre not and weird in like a medieval uh, yeah B-A-Z-A-R. It's, not as, it's not as large it's more localized you know it's everything now with capitalism and mm -hmm. everything's more controlled but there's still a little bit of that energy there and it's mm. uh and the music is there and uh anyhow so i have a lot of hope i think it's getting together and dancing and having yeah community rites of celebration yes is 
is we desperately need that and it, and I'm not putting down sports but we get that by watching by football games or yeah baseball games or political rallies but there's it's all about competition or competition you know. and and there's something about a community celebrating together that to me was mm -hmm. part of the psychedelic experience that with or without psychedelics I think we could learn from that yeah and and celebrate our community and the earth yeah and our local communities and uh yeah. yeah wow this is not where i pictured this conversation ending up but like i suddenly feel so optimistic <laughs> well to my experience one of the things psychedelics opens you up to is one just the magic and realities that aren't always like uh, comforting necessarily but mm -hmm. just the fact that there's realities there are energies however you want to put it mm -hmm. <laughs> that are way bigger than our our sort of paradigms yeah but there's also this sort of interpersonal connectedness that you experience that like that our self is really an interrelated self yeah and the dalai lama says the two sort of important things we need are you know, Inter interconnectedness and sort of compassion or kindness sometimes or something like that mm. and i feel like uh psychedelics or even other way other ways of feeling interconnected not only to as a community but to the earth mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are part of the psychedelic experience for me it's not just like me as a person taking it this way happens mm -hmm. in my brain but it's more like me as a person takes it and this is how i get out of my brain <laughs> Mm -hmm. this other reality which is not just my delusions or me experiencing reality but it's also me being part of this interconnection and that's where mm -hmm. with some of the tantric practices and approaches it seems very consistent but in a very you know obviously more structured time-tested mm -hmm. approach mm -hmm. um some of which i don't know if, you know really conducive to westerners even implementing but uh that's a whole different story <laughs> uh, yeah I had something else I was going to say, but I, I lost it. Yeah. This is, it's been such a rich conversation. And like, for as long as I've known you, there, I just learned so much. I really appreciate, you know, you're being willing to like share what sound like some really precious and like vivid experiences that you had. Yeah, and I have to say part of it is the sort of resurgence of, of the Grateful Dead community in the past five years. Uh, Jerry Garcia died in 1995, and there was really kind of like if a great leader of a therapy program or anything <laughs> dies, you know, there's sort of infighting and mm -hmm. a lot of grieving. I think mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense to when I never met that the level of grief I had personally was deeper than yeah. anything. And so I would sit there and sometimes watch YouTube videos that's another yeah. people were recording these concerts in the 70s and 80s so you can actually go wow. physically and there's archivists there's a whole a program at uc santa cruz are archiving the whole experience and getting first anyhow after they had a uh, reunion concert in 2015 uh so it would have been 20 years after jerry garcia died it would have been their 50th mm -hmm. anniversary for the band and something happened after that I, at least for me personally and it seems it's like the grief we we went to the grieving process and then the band members said this is the last time we're all playing but three of them started another band and there's a new young energy mm. and there's all these cover bands all over the country and um 
it's similar to jazz in a sense that like the older generation and the younger generation of musically are having this dialogue now and mm. there's a sense of resurgence and podcasts and to me some of the beauty of the of the movement or whatever you want to call it that was sort of only part of the story because there was also a lot of darkness and risk and other mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. but I feel like there's this beautiful resurgence going on right now and I can feel it and yeah the, the interpersonal mind and I don't want to get into Jerry Garcia but I feel like mm -hmm. his music is going to be around longer than I'm going to be around put it that way yeah, yeah. man what an impact he's had on so many lives. Yeah. And just the whole, that whole thing, uh, the whole community yeah. hippie thing, for lack of a better term. <laughs> uh, yeah, I believe the hippies were right in a certain sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it feels like we have an opportunity to take what was good about the hippie movement and, and repurpose it. Celebrating community. Mm -hmm questioning authority when we need to yeah questioning social norms when we need to yeah live and let live as long as you're not harming someone else be kind to one another take care of one another to me those that's the ethos we need yeah to really survive i mean in a certain yeah. sense. Uh, and and, and it, let the magic back in and it has to happen on a community level it can't be just like big concerts you know it has mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. ultimately happen on a community level but now look at the infrastructure we have for creating community yeah, I mean, it's so much greater than it was, you know, back in the 80s or so, 70s. So I, I could, going back to Buddhism, I could see some sort of, you know, combination of Buddhist practices and ethics, but also embedded with dance and mm. fun. And, mm -hmm. and that's going on a little bit. Uh, what is Sharon Salzberg tells the story of teaching with Ram Das <laughs> and their co-teaching and you know, Ram Dass is like, man, you Buddhists are really lazy. I mean, not lazy, really uh, boring. And, you know, this part no is a lot, of, a lot of clapping and singing and stuff. You know, so yeah. so I think I, I, to me that's the paradigm of 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 an ethic moving forward. There's this mm -hmm. austerity and this groundingness and this mm -hmm. breathing practice, however that manifests for people, not necessarily meditation, but then this other aspect of tapping into magic and community. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me. Um, for me, psychedelics was more on the that side, but also the grounding side as well, mm -hmm. in terms of just stripping, mm -hmm. stripping away the sort of stories and sort of false identity or whatever you want to call that, just the mm -hmm. constructs, worldview or view that uh, we all have that we're probably not aware of. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess we kind of just covered this, but, you know, if you were to essentialize like your hopes for what psychedelics could offer us now, like what would be your like one or two biggest aspirations for the moment? Well, one, there's a Grateful Dead lyric, believe it if you need it, if you don't just pass it on. So one, it's <laughs> not an answer. It's not like everybody should be taking LSD or mushrooms. Right. Right. But uh, I believe that it could be used as a is a possible tool for uh, yeah, just tapping into magic and community and opening, opening our minds to reality that's much bigger than, than, than what we are. And I feel like it's just buried under the surface. I've been reading uh, and working some with 14th through 16th century Christian 
mystics and there was so much magic there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. tapping in i'm not like a scholar or a deep practitioner in the bit of just reading a lot and doing some mm -hmm. of the practices you know we sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater. yeah for, good, for some good reasons but we need to which do we want we want the baby or the bathwater one back <laughs> yeah sure. yeah maybe we can recover that baby <laughs> <laughs> we need a sense of magic yeah recover the baby and leave the bathwater out or something exactly and the baby's like wanting us to take care of one another and survive and yeah enjoy life and that's yeah that's what i love about mahayana approach this idea of bliss mm -hmm. robert thurman's been talking a lot about this lately just <laughs> bliss is connected to compassion and wisdom or, or what have you it's, it's not like we either have bliss or we have yeah. ethics it, we can have a blissful blissful way of pursuing ethics and community and interconnectedness i didn't say that very eloquently or authentically into the tradition but buddhism has helped me sort of tap into bliss again mm. that i didn't think was possible mm. and yeah That's and i think beautiful. psychedelics could be a potential in a controlled setting or mm -hmm. dealing with sort of le issues of legality. I think it could be a, a potential powerful tool for um, getting in touch with that bliss, sense of magic, connectedness, et cetera. Yeah. You listened all the way to the end. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or like and subscribe. May you and all beings be well.